With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature, including descriptions of physical and sexual violence against adults, children, and animals. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we are TNT Crimes and Consequences, a true crime podcast. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Talia. How are you? I am great today. I really feel like that's going to change. It always does when we record. This one is, how do I say it? This one is very high on the gruesome scale. Everybody be warned. It's so high. Remember I told you I was reading about a cult case and it was just too graphic for me to go on? Yes. Well, I did. It's this one? It's this one. Oh, no. I made it through it. Ooh, everybody buckle up. Oh, buckle up. Now, normally I don't like cults. I'm just not, that's just not my thing. But this was really interesting. I'd like to ask everybody to take one second to hit the little subscribe button. Okay, so I don't know if you know about a guy named James Paul Wickstrom. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay, well, this story absolutely has to start with him. In the early 1980s, he ran for various political offices in Wisconsin, and he ran as an independent. He taught from the Bible, and he frequently advocated the mass murder of Jews, non-European Americans, homosexuals, drug addicts, and race traitors. Wow. In accordance with the beliefs of what's called the Christian Identity Movement, Do you know what that is? Nope. I feel good that I don't know. (laughs) Yes, these are all (laughs) correct answers. From what I can understand, the Christian identity movement, that's basically a group of white supremacists who interpret the Bible based on their white supremacy beliefs. This gives you an idea of who James Paul Wickstrom is. And he didn't win any of the political seats. (laughs) So as I said, back in the early 80s, Wickstrom... He was a founding member of this racist, anti-Semitic, anti-government, posse comitatus movement. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, everybody by this time should know I don't know how to pronounce anything. (laughs) So I think it's called posse comitatus. So he was the founder of this movement. And it was growing in the early 80s. He would travel around and hold meetings with other like-minded people who hated on everybody but themselves. 
A posse comitatus is actually defined as a group summoned by the local sheriff to keep peace or enforce peace, hence the sheriff's posse. However, this group distorted the meaning of posse comitatus for their own agenda. In June of 1982, an unemployed 30-year-old livestock truck driver named Michael Ryan, he attended one of Wickstrom's meetings of the Posse Comitatus in Wisconsin. And then he attended another one of Wickstrom's Bible lectures in Hiawatha, Kansas. Eventually, Michael became basically Wickstrom's protege in Kansas. At one of the meetings, Wickstrom showed Michael what was called or known as the arm test. Have you heard of the arm test? No, I haven't. Well, this is how an arm test would go. Michael would face a group member who would extend his arm out at approximately a 90 degree angle from his body or her body. So it would be the member's body. Michael would then place his left hand on the member's right shoulder and place his right hand on the member's right wrist. Then he would ask Yahweh, because that's the name Michael and his friends used for God. Michael would ask Yahweh a question. As Michael was asking the question, he would apply pressure to the person's right arm. If the arm dropped, the answer to the question being asked of Yahweh was no. If the person's arm stayed up, the answer was yes. <laughs> this just sounds stupid. Let me tell you, they use the arms test for everything. Even to determine how long to boil water. Come on. For real. As a result of his involvement with the Posse Comitatus, Michael met more and more like-minded men like him. And around 1982, 1983, he started calling these guys and they would get together on Saturdays and learn the Bible, their version of the Bible. There weren't a lot of men, and I am going to throw quite a few names out, but it's kind of important. So try to follow me. If you don't, it's okay. In the beginning, the men that met on Saturday were Jim Haberkamp, a man named Rick Stice, and two Mennonites. John Andreas, and James Thim. The true story of what I'm going to talk to you about is actually in reference to the horrific deaths of James and Rick's five-year-old son, Luke. So I'm going to give you a little background on, on these guys. James Thim was about 23 years old when he first met Michael. He was born to Mennonites. Their name was Frank and Betty Jane. He was born on July 10th in 1959. Not long after he was born, his mom became really ill and she couldn't care for him. And you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, his dad wasn't prepared to be a single father. So James actually got placed with a couple named Carl and Hilda Schmidt. They were Mennonites too, and they fostered James. James's father continued to parent him, but more on the side. James was a very active member of the Beatrice Mennonite Church. And basically, the church played a huge role in his life. However, after meeting Michael, the Mennonite church he went to 
became less important to him, and he started listening more and more to Michael's teachings. As I mentioned, another man that met on Saturdays, his name was Rick Stice. And Rick Stice wasn't always a posse, comitatus kind of guy. He was once a loving husband to his wife, Sandra. She was his high school sweetheart, and together they had three children, Aura, Barry, and Lou. Rick and Sandra lived on an 80-acre hog farm in Rulo, Nebraska, and it was thriving. However, after a while, for some reason, the price of hogs went down. I don't know much about the hog market. (laughs) And so Rick and Sandra had to kind of tighten their budget. One of the bills they cut out was health insurance. And a year later, Sandra got diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Desperate for a cure, Rick and Sandra began turning to faith healers in the hope of saving Sandra's life. They attended several of Wickstrom's perverse Bible studies, and that's how Rick met Michael. And you can see how Rick and his wife became desperate to believe in something that could potentially save her life. In April of 1983, Sandra died from her illness, and Rick sort of lost his way. By that summer, it was determined, through the arm test, that Michael had the spirit of Archangel Michael in him. Michael was able to convince, which by now was a small group of followers, that he could communicate directly with Yahweh through his mind. He didn't always have to do the arm test anymore. (laughs) Michael told this group of people that he was receiving new orders from the headquarters, quote unquote, which meant Yahweh. Michael said that he personally, quote, talked to Yahweh and that the men were supposed to go out and do some stealing for the group, end quote. Isn't one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal? They've got their own perspective on that. You could justify anything if, you know, to fit your, your perspective. Now, if anyone refused to cooperate with Yahweh's orders, they ran the risk of angering Yahweh and their families would lose Yahweh's protection from Satan. This group believed that the Battle of Armageddon, as was written in the book of Revelations, was coming their way and they needed to prepare for this battle. They wanted to set up a base for them, like a compound So they would travel to Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. They would steal cattle, hogs, farm equipment, and construction equipment. And then they would turn around and sell it. They would use the proceeds to buy weapons and ammunition and clothing. And they would stockpile all that in preparation for the Battle of Armageddon. So they're like doomsday preppers. You got it. Okay. Some sort of paramilitary... Bible thumpers. Well, these people sound like fun. Not. <laughs> not any not any fun at all, no. Tanya. Unless you're Michael. Trust me, he's having a good time, but you'll see. Through time, more and more followers began coming to these Saturday meetings to hear Michael preach the Bible. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of some of who they are. Most of them consisted of a family called the Havercamps. There was Jim and his sisters Cheryl and Lisa, and their mother, Maxine. 
Michael had a wife. Her name was Ruth. They had been married since 1967. And Michael had three children. Jim's younger brother and his father would also attend. And then Rick Stice, I told you about, he would bring his three children. Sometimes James Thim, the Mennonite, and his friend John and Andreas, the other Mennonite, would join. So that's the group, okay? You got the Haverkamps, you got Michael's family, and you got a couple other extras. During these meetings, Michael would read and interpret various verses of the Bible. He told the group that any teachings in the Bible that went against his belief were put there by the Jews, whom he despised. During these meetings, verses of the Bible were rewritten to conform with the group's beliefs. At the conclusion of all their meetings, the group would smoke some weed. Oh, this is... It's just like when you go to church. (laughs) At one of these meetings held in Kansas, because that's where Michael and his family live, Michael took Cheryl Haverkamp aside, and he told her that Yahweh wanted her to leave her husband, Lester. Michael used the arm test to determine that in Yahweh's eyes... Cheryl was not actually even married to Lester. Yahweh didn't believe that marriage was real. And Lester, who wasn't part of the group, was actually on Satan's side. That's what Yahweh said. Michael warned her that if she didn't come live with him and his wife, Ruth, Lester and Cheryl's children would all die in a horrible accident, according to Yahweh. Fearing her children's safety, Cheryl left Lester And she took her five children and she moved in with Michael and his wife, Ruth, and their three kids. Lester had no idea where his wife went and where the children went. And this poor guy, he spent years, just so you know, distributing thousands of leaflets. He hired private investigators. He spent all of his money trying to find his kids. He eventually convinced a local county special prosecutor to issue a felony warrant against Cheryl. But if you can't find her, you can't serve her. In May of 1984, a cult wedding service was held with Rick Stice officiating, and Michael and Cheryl were married in Yahweh's eyes. So he's married to Ruth and to Cheryl? Yes. The special prosecutor that I told you about had gained a lot of evidence through Lester, Cheryl's husband, that there was some paramilitary activities forming. He couldn't find Cheryl, but he knew who Cheryl had been hanging out with, and somehow they were able to get some evidence. And he brought it to the FBI, and the FBI basically made a joke about it, and then they told the special prosecutor they don't do domestic cases. And Lester was desperately trying to tell people this is more than just a domestic case. And you'll see why he's saying that in a little bit. In June of 1984, Rick invited Michael. Now, Rick had this 80-acre hog farm in Ulo, Nebraska. Rick invited Michael and the rest of the group to come live with him on his hog farm. Michael determined through an arm test that that is what Yahweh wanted So they all moved to the farm. During the summer of 84, Michael, Ruth, and their three children, one of their children was actually a 15-year-old boy named Dennis. Cheryl and her five children 
and the group of Haverkamps moved to Rulo Farm. The Mennonite, James Thim, he ended up being unable to find work where he was from, so he moved onto the farm too. At some point, Lisa Haverkamp, who was only 15, had a baby. Later on, two new followers joined the group and moved on the farm too. One of them was John Andreas, who was a Mennonite friend of James Thim. And the other one was another Haverkamp. His name was Timothy. Timothy was 22 years old. He kind of got sucked into becoming a member because he graduated from high school. He started college. He didn't really like college, so he dropped out. He was living on a farm helping his dad. And he went to the Rulo farm, the hog farm, to see what the hell his cousins had been up to. And when he got there, Michael asked him if he could borrow his car. And he said, yeah. And Michael didn't return for three days. So Timothy is just stuck there. And during those three days, they convinced him, come stay. Because he had five family members there. So that's how he got sucked into the group. Now, just to summarize, this group consists of seven adult men, two adult women, one teenage girl named Lisa, and 10 young children. Maxine Haverkamp, Cheryl's mom and Lisa's mom, she would come every two weeks and eventually married Michael, too. Wow. So Michael is married to Cheryl. And her mom. And her mom. Eventually, Rick Stice married 15-year-old Lisa. The Rulo Farmstead was made up, as I said, of 80 acres. It had various barns, various sheds, and the living quarters were actually two trailers, the North Trailer and the South Trailer. Because Rick Stice had been determined by Yahweh to be a high priest, I don't know if I told you that, but he's a high (laughs) priest, he got to have the North trailer with his 15-year-old wife, Lisa. The rest of the group somehow managed to squeeze into the other trailer. The men slept in a large room known as the barracks, and the women and children just slept in various spots in a trailer. After moving on to the farm, Michael did an arms test, and he ordered Rick to stop raising hogs because pork violates kosher law. That's Jewish law. I'm so confused by that. I'm really confused, too. Rick complied. However, when the farm stopped raising hogs, they lost their only source of legitimate income. I was wondering about that. Like, how are they making money? But stealing. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. Stealing. By August of 1984, daily life on the farm was taking shape. The women would consult with Yahweh through the arms test in order to determine meal plans. As I said before, how long they should boil water for. And Michael would use the arms test to find out if any of the members of the group needed to fast or to do penance. Michael would assign tasks for everyone else to do throughout the whole day while he watched television. Nice. What a lazy ass. Everybody else is doing the work. When it was night, Michael would direct the men to go on these stealing raids, but he would never participate in them himself. Keep in mind, everything they did was in preparation for that Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon was actually known as the Battle of the Wheat Fields. I didn't know that. I didn't either. 
And Michael noted that there were a lot of wheat fields near Rulo. So he concluded that Armageddon was going to happen right by them. What a coincidence he happens to be right where the battle's going to happen. Right. <laughs> Michael gave each of the men a military title. Within a few months, they were all generals and had all gained five-star general status. With the exception of Rick Stice, he had a six-star general status and was a high priest. All of Michael's wives were referred to as queens. By the fall of 1984, the group had acquired over 75,000 rounds of ammunition and dozens of weapons, including fully automatic rifles. They had stockpiled seed, charcoal, and enough food to fill a room 20 feet by 35 feet long and wide. Things were going really well for the group until the end of 1984. With no income coming in from the hogs, Rick Stice wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and he soon was forced to sell the farm. The Haverkamps actually bought the farm from Rick, but Yahweh was still really mad at Rick. I don't know why. He was just mad. Okay. Just go with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with it. Yahweh told Michael that he believed Rick was having, quote, bad thoughts. Rick got demoted, and Lisa, his wife, was sent to live in the other trailer. She was sent to share a bed with Michael, Ma- Michael Ruth, and Cheryl, and occasionally her mom. Eventually... Within a few days, Michael actually married Lisa, and she became his third cult wife. So he has one legal wife, and he has three cult wives. Sister wives. Yes. (laughs) Then Michael married another woman named Deborah, and that was Cheryl and Lisa's sister and Maxine's daughter. So he was married to three sisters and one mother, plus his wife, Ruth. And these women are just like, okay, I'm so grossed out. Maxine didn't actually live on the farm. She would just come twice a month to perform her wifely duties. In December of 1984, Michael announced that Lisa was the queen of Israel. On New Year's Eve, Michael told the group that he and Lisa had both spoken to Yahweh. And Yahweh said there was going to be some serious changes on the farm. After the group smoked marijuana, Michael gave a speech And he said there was a lot of jealousy going on in the farm. If it didn't stop, they were all going to lose their children. I don't know who's jealous of what. I'm assuming all the men are jealous of Michael because he's got... All the women? All the women, yes. He's got all all, all of them. Yes, he's got all of them. At some point, there were a total of 25 people that were following Michael. But I don't know how many are following him right now. But Michael told everyone that... Each individual person had to make a decision on whether they were going to remain with a cult, of course he didn't call it a cult, or they were going to leave the farm. Yahweh had indicated that anyone who elected to leave would burn in hell, and if they elected to stay, they had to stay forever. He said if anyone left, he was going to hunt them down and kill them. Not really a lot of choices there for you, right? No. Burn in hell or I'll kill you, or you're trapped here forever. By the beginning of 1985, some of the Rulo group began expressing their doubts. During one Saturday Bible study, 
James Thim, the Mennonite, stated he wasn't sure there was a Yahweh and he didn't know if he believed the arm test. He wasn't the only one that questioned Michael and his teachings. Apparently, Rick did. And Rick's five-year-old son, Luke, according to Michael, had doubts. But with Luke, Michael said he could just read his thoughts. This didn't sit well with Michael or Yahweh. And let me tell you, things got really bad for James, Rick, and little Luke. Both James and Rick were demoted to slave status, and Luke was demoted to a dog status, or dog shit, he was called. Nice. This is going to get really bad, Tanya. Oh. Sorry. It's okay. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) That's what you're here for. I mean, it's really, really sad. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone if you go to our website tntcrimes.com you can find full unreleased episodes available for individual purchase you can also join our membership where you get unlimited access to all of our unreleased episodes and early releases mini episodes and so many other awesome things so go to tntcrimes.com and thanks again for all your support During January and February, apparently, as part of the changes Michael had mentioned, Rick and James were responsible for most of the guard duty, washing dishes, taking care of the chickens and the goats, more of the wimpy sort of activities instead of like being able to have the guns and and be the top badasses around the farm. This is really a great way to convince someone to stay, don't you think? Michael began systematically abusing them. He threatened to cut off Rick's penis, and he threatened to skin Luke alive and then burn him alive. He would force James and Rick to do exercise for hours at a time until they were, like, going to drop. His intentions were to completely degrade and humiliate them in front of everybody else. Michael treated Luke really horribly. He did it not so much to hurt Luke as to hurt Rick, his dad. And again, Luke was only five. Michael put ashes from a cigarette in Luke's mouth. He would spit on him. He shot him in the arm. He tied a whip around the boy's neck and lifted him off the ground saying, this is the mongrel. This is the seat of Satan. He ordered other members to roll him around in the snow when he was in only his underwear And he made him eat his meals off the floor. He ordered Rick to paint the sign of the beast, quote, the number 666, on Luke's back. He would repeatedly drench Luke with ice water and throw him out in the cold. 
in March of 1985, Michael had completely just lost his mind. He told the group that Rick, Luke, and James were continuing to have really bad thoughts. He said they needed to be humiliated to drive those thoughts away. Michael said Yahweh had spoken to him and instructed that James needed to have anal sex with Rick in front of the group and he needed to make Rick hurt. What? So James did. Why didn't these people just leave? I don't understand. It's something we don't understand, yeah, right? Yeah, I don't understand. It's that cult mentality that, that if you're not in it, you don't understand. Michael then said Yahweh demanded that Rick perform oral sex on Luke. What? And then forced Luke to perform oral sex on his dad. Why everybody watched. Oh my God. How can everybody be okay with this? I don't think they were. I don't think anybody was okay with it. I think there was a lot of confusion because they really believed in Yahweh. And they were very confused as to why Yahweh wanted this. But if this is what Yahweh wants, then it must be the right path. A few weeks later, on March 25th, Michael became very angry at little Luke. And he started pushing and shoving him. Michael shoved Luke headfirst into a cabinet three times. On the third time, Luke became unconscious. Sometime during that night, Luke died. Oh. Luke was buried the following morning in an unmarked grave that Michael had forced Rick and James to dig. Only a few days after Luke's death, Michael forced Rick to fuck a goat. What? This is just going from bad to worse, Leah. In front of everybody. Jesus, God. He had him do it three separate times. Now, you have to appreciate, at this point, Rick and James aren't just free to leave. They are being watched by other members of the group. They're both pretty much hostages. Michael had ordered everybody to make sure that they didn't escape. Well, they probably were so afraid, too, that this was going to happen to them. Exactly. That being said, Michael and his teen bride, Lisa, the Queen of Israel, left for Kansas City to go on a honeymoon at the end of March. He left his 15 or 16-year-old son, I don't know how old he is at this point, Dennis in charge, along with Timothy Haverkamp. He was the cousin that went to visit and his car got taken for three days. Those guys, 22 and 16, were left in charge. While Michael was gone... Rick was able to escape. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to take his two other kids that were seven and nine years old. When Michael and Lisa came back and discovered Rick had escaped, Michael decided that James needed to be kept chained to make sure he didn't escape. So he was actually chained to the South Trailer's porch. Seven days after Rick had left the farm, he began to worry about whether that whole eternal damnation thing was real or not don't tell me he goes back so he came back (laughs) no because he was very afraid he was going to be punished in the afterlife instead of embracing his return michael chained him up next to james on the south trailer porch on april 4th timothy haverkamp was ordered to unchain rick and take him down to cash a social security check. I'm not sure why he got social security, but he he was getting some sort of check from the government. 
While they went to go to the bank, Rick escaped again and went into hiding. After the second escape, Michael really was pissed. And he was determined to punish James for what Rick did. Michael would encourage the group to smoke weed and do target practice around the farm. So they would literally kind of get stoned and then just take their guns and just shoot around the farm. One day, Michael's son, Dennis, accidentally while stoned, shot James in the face with a 22. It didn't kill him. And the group refused to allow him to get any treatment for it. After that, James was forced to be chained 24-7, basically, for the most part. Instead of having regular meals with the group, he was fed only small birds that the men would shoot throughout the day. Within a few weeks, James lost a lot of weight and he began to look like, quote, a sickly old man. And this is going to get really bad. Here we go. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico where she worked and then disappeared. Well, the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? They said they grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael Bohr's van. I didn't know Michael Bohr had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't send the What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign, it's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. They would have put that van on my trailer and Heidi would have been in that van. That's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in the system from day one, and there's nothing else I can say. This is the story of Heidi Allen. The story of a small town kidnapping where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles. Download and subscribe to Peebles for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. In addition, he was now forced to have sex with a goat in front of everyone else. That poor goat, by the way, there's only one goat on that whole farm. No, it's the same goat. It's the same goat. On April 27th, the group cooked a wild turkey that ended up tasting really dry. Michael accused James of having put some sort of household cleaner on it in an attempt to poison the group. And he made James eat the turkey. However, James didn't get sick from it because James didn't poison it. James is pretty much chained. Michael decided to teach James a lesson. And he had each man take turns beating him. And then they forced him to have sex with the goat again. When they were done, they took James to an old barn that was used to confine hogs. And they chained him there for the night. Now, at this point... The adult men on the farm are Michael, 16-year-old Dennis, 22-year-old Timothy Haverkamp, 
his cousin, Jim Haverkamp, and the Mennonite, John Andreas. All those men took turns beating James. The next day, Michael sent John Andreas out to the hog pen with a bowl of granola to feed to James. Michael told the rest of the men when they were eating breakfast that Yahweh would be pleased if James could last four to five days alive, being tortured. At about mid-morning, Michael, Dennis, the Haverkamps, and John Andreas went to the hog barn to really punish James some more on behalf of Yahweh. Michael ordered James to strip naked and bend over a farrowing crate. Do you know what that is? No. A farrowing crate is a metal crate that hogs are held in and doesn't have a top. And, each, and, and they could move around and there's hay at the bottom and their food is attached to part of it. Like the trough is. Okay. I'm just going to do this, Tanya, okay? Okay. Michael then taunted James telling him that he was going to rape him with a handle of a shovel. Oh! He then took the shovel handle and inserted it into a container of grease. Oh, Tuya! Telling the rest of the men that Yahweh didn't think James had done a good enough job fucking the goat, and that it was Yahweh's wish that all five men take turns, quote, probing James with a shovel handle. Oh, my gosh. I'm horrified right now. Oh, well, just hang on. I just got to get through this, Tanya. Okay. The gruesome scale is so high right now. If you don't like gruesome, you're going to have to skip forward like five minutes. Five minutes? <laughs> oh, God. This was This is brutal. It really makes you question humanity, but that's a whole nother topic. Michael then inserted the shovel handle about five or six inches into James's rectum and probed James for about 30 seconds. I don't know what it means to probe somebody exactly in this manner, but okay. When James wouldn't stop fidgeting and squirming around, Michael tied his arms to the farrowing crate with bale wire. Oh, that must have hurt also. Wire? Yeah, right? Michael then informed the men that Yahweh had talked to him and wanted the handle inserted between 8 to 10 inches into James. Someone went and got a tape measure. No. And they marked the shovel handle at 9 inches. Each of the remaining men then took turns probing James's rectum with the shovel handle. When Michael raped James again... He yelled out to James, I ought to shove this thing up to your heart. James kept screaming, so Michael kicked him in the head, and then he taped his mouth shut so no one had to listen to the screaming and crying. Later on that day, when they were done raping him, Michael forced James to sign over his car title to Timothy Haverkamp. It was Timothy's birthday, so Michael gave him James's car as a birthday present. At some point, Michael said Yahweh wanted the men to probe James again. So each man raped him again with the shovel handle. During the second round of probing, Michael forced the shovel handle two feet into James's rectum. 
rupturing his rectal wall. Oh. Michael decided that he had inserted it too far and that they needed to stop doing that. But they needed to keep punishing James. So he said instead of going longer, they were going to go wider. He took the fat end of a pick handle, which is three inches wide, and he inserted it into the container of grease. And then he inserted it into James's rectum about three inches. Oh, my God. After the second round of probing, the men left to go do some chores, and they left James chained in the hog shed, severely injured. Remember, he's still got that gunshot wound to his face, and he's been beaten. I forgot about the gunshot wound. Oh, my God. After the chores were done, Michael told the men that Yahweh felt James hadn't been punished enough. And he ordered all the men to go back to the shed where they were to remove James's binding from the crate. And then after removing the bindings, they retied him to an overhead auger. Do you know what that is? No. The best way to think of it is, is a big metal pipe. Okay. Just picture that and you'll be fine. They tied his hands up to the overhead auger and I believe like hanged him by his wrists. Each of the men were ordered to give James 15 lashes with a leather whip on his back. Michael began the whipping and with each lash, he would call out one of the cult members names. During this abuse, James cried out repeatedly, quote, I'm sorry, Yahweh, please forgive me for what I've done. Please stop this, Yahweh, please. To which Michael cruelly replied, well, you don't need to worry about that because Yahweh's given up on you. You don't have any hope anymore. After the 75 lashings were done, James was untied. He was given a sleeping bag to lay in and he was chained up in the hog shed for the rest of the night. The following morning, the group had breakfast together, as they always did. During breakfast, Michael told the men that James, he still wasn't punished enough. Are you kidding me? Well, because he's not dead, right? Exactly, right? That's exactly it. You can tell Michael's goal at this point has to be to kill him. Has to be. They all went to the hog shed, retied James to the overhead auger, and again gave him 15 lashes each with a leather belt. Once they were done whipping him, James was untied and he was forced to lay on his back where all the whippings were. And at this point, he's at 150 whippings on his back. I'm sure he's cut open. Yeah, he has to be. He has to be. James was then once again tied to a pipe and each of the five men took turns lashing at him once again with the whip but this time they did it on his chest and stomach 15 times each for another 75 lashings at this point james couldn't even scream all he could do was just moan michael told him if he didn't shut the fuck up it would only get worse to prove his point he placed james's left hand palm up on a block of wood and he tied it there During the ordeal, James would moan for the most part. Every now and then, he would be able to spit out a sentence or two asking for forgiveness. The other men in the group, so you know Tanya, they were crying and freaking out. They didn't want 
to do it. They were very confused, emotionally drained, but were afraid if they didn't. So they did what they were told. While James's hand is tied palm up onto the block of wood, Michael grabbed a gun and he shot one of James's fingertips off with a pistol. Each of the four remaining men took turns shooting the rest of his fingers and thumb off. Oh, just when we thought it couldn't get any worse. It did. When they were done, they all went inside the trailer for lunch. During lunch, Michael told the group that Yahweh wanted James dead by that afternoon. Michael told John Andreas to go out in the field and find a good spot for burial and to kind of clear out the area. He didn't tell him to dig a grave, but he told him to go find something and make it accessible that will be good and hidden. He also told John Andreas that he needed to go in and say goodbye to James. He said, I know James is your friend. He's going to die. So now's your chance to say goodbye. John Andreas went into the hog shed and he spoke with James. James was barely alive. John said his goodbyes. And the last thing that James said to him was that he was sorry. Aww. John Andreas left and all the men returned to the hog shed. Now, I'm going to warn you, Michael, once again, he is not done with James, okay? I am traumatized. It gets worse. And when, <laughs> t- by the way, it's when Tanya fun. laughs, she, this is a nervous laugh for her, okay? Uh, it is. I'm not laughing because it's funny at all. That no. is Tanya's I'm so uncomfortable laugh. The men go into the hog shed. Michael kicks James in the arm, and the arm is still tied to the board, <sighs> so it breaks. He then told James that he was going to skin him alive, which he did. Oh, my God. Talia. Michael grabbed a pair of yellow kitchen gloves and he put them on his hands. He got a razor blade and he made an incision into James's leg. Then he used a pair of pliers to pull off strips of James's skin. Oh, my God. James was still alive and, and Michael took the skin and he put it like, in front of James's face and showed him his removed skin. This is so fucked up. I think this is worse than the Kansas City butcher, Talia. You think that until you listen to that. Oh. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. So. It's been a while. Michael then told 16-year-old Dennis to break one of James's legs. Dennis took a two-by-four board. He proceeded to strike James in the knee area, and it took a while he had to do it quite a few times to break his leg michael told the men there was an easier way to break bones he then placed a block of wood under james's leg and told timothy haverkamp to hit james's leg with a two by four timothy did and james's leg immediately snapped at the knee while james is near death but still conscious michael bent down got in his face and asked him if he thought Yahweh meant business yet. To finish James off, Michael, who is a large man, he's 6'2", like 200-something pounds, he repeatedly stomped on James's chest with his cowboy boots, crushing him. He ordered Jim Haverkamp to go to the trailer and get a sleeping bag. By the time Jim returned, James was dead. Thank God, that poor man. Isn't that just so horrible, Tanya? That is so terrible. 
Like he welcomed death, I'm sure. It's just, I'm so angry. And if there's an afterlife, I hope James is living a beautiful afterlife. Yeah, because by all accounts, he was a he was a nice guy. So I mean, he just he just got mixed up with the wrong people. James's clothes, along with his mutilated body, were placed in a sleeping bag and left in the hog shed. About three or four hours later, Michael told the men that Yahweh wanted a grave to be dug. He wanted it six feet long by three feet wide and six feet deep. He ordered the men to dig, and they did. They put his body in the grave, and then Michael ordered Timothy Haverkamp to shoot James in the head. So if anybody would ever find James's body, they would think it was some sort of execution. Oh, with all the broken bones. I don't even know why it would matter what anybody thinks. And no fingertips, and... I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. Timothy complied, and then all the men filled the grave with dirt. All of the men were emotionally traumatized by this three-day ordeal, except for Michael. Michael kept reassuring them that they weren't responsible for what happened. He told them, quote, God did it. Yahweh did that. Yahweh took his anger and he directed it through me to punish James, end quote. This actually provided some relief to the people of the group. Michael told his cult wife, Cheryl, how proud he was of his son, Dennis, for Dennis's part in the torture. But he expressed concern regarding John Andreas and Jim Haverkamp. He said that they almost refused to do what they were told, and they were very hesitant to hurt James. He told Cheryl if they didn't straighten out, he was going to kill them too. During the next two months, the cult continued stealing cattle and equipment. But on June 25th, and this is two months after James is dead, two of the men, Jim Haverkamp and John Andreas, they got caught while attempting to return to the Rulu farm with a sprayer rig. Nope. Have no idea. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's the things I see when I drive by a field that spray things out of it. I don't know. That they water the crops with maybe? Something. I don't know. It sprays. It sprays. It's a rig that sprays. They were going to return to the Rulo farm with a sprayer rig they stole in Kansas. But they got arrested on their way back. And once they were arrested, they immediately confessed everything to the police. The very next day, Rick Strice got word. Remember Rick? Yes. He got word that Jim and John Andreas were arrested and he went to the police and he told them everything he knew. Armed with a warrant, a team of law enforcement officers composed of the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms, Nebraska State Patrol officers, and the local county sheriff's department all went to the farm. They were specifically looking for little Luke's body and James's body. The two captured men, Jim and John Andreas, they went to the farm with the police to help find the bodies, but actually took them two days because it's 80 acres. Right. It took them two days to find the bodies. On the second day of searching, they found James' nude, partially decomposed body, and everyone in the group got arrested. The authorities ended up confiscating 150,000 rounds of ammunition. Wow. 30 semi-automatic rifles, 15 machine guns, more than a dozen pistols, and $250,000 worth of stolen farm machinery. 
That's just scary. Very scary. An autopsy was performed by a medical examiner for the state, and another one was done by Michael's defense team. Because Michael's going to be obviously on trial for murder. I'm not going to go through all the injuries, because I already told you what happened. Yeah, thank you. The only disagreement between the two medical examiners was that the state's doctor said James's penis and testicles had been cut off, while the medical examiner hired by Michael's team said they'd simply decomposed because they were missing. They were missing. They were missing. I don't know. I don't know. I'm willing to bet they were cut off. It wouldn't be a far stretch. I wouldn't be surprised. This is really sad. Neither pathologist could determine the exact cause of death because the tear in the colon, the whipping-like injuries, the gunshot wound to the head, the gunshot wound to the face, and the shock from the broken legs, plus the crushed chest, were all capable of causing his death independently. At the trial, every member of the group testified against Michael and deals worked out by the prosecutor. On September 12th, 1985, Michael Ryan was convicted by a jury of first-degree murder for the torture and death of James, and he was sentenced to death. He pled no contest to second-degree murder for the death of Luke Michael was eventually scheduled to be put to death on March 6th of 2012, but the state Supreme Court halted his execution because there was a shortage of sodium theopental. Come on. There was such a shortage they couldn't find enough to execute him? you remember that in the news? The company, like, refused to make it or something like that because it was being used to, to put people to death. There was that big controversy, remember that? I don't remember that. Really? Yeah, so all death sentences were basically put on hold. Before he could be executed, he died in 2015 of, I believe it was cancer. Oh, I hope it was painful. He was on death row. On a side note, James's sister advocated actually against the death penalty. She said it really wasn't necessary because Michael had cancer and he was going to die anyway. And let God take him, kind of a thing. Now, Timothy Haverkamp... You remember, he's the cousin with the car taken from him for three days. He was released in 2009 after serving 23 years in prison. He was deemed to be an outstanding prisoner. And by all accounts, he takes responsibility for what he did. And he's turned out to be an upstanding citizen, productive member of society, And I I read a lot of articles of people seem to really like him. Now, Dennis Ryan, the 16-year-old son of Michael, he was sentenced to life for second-degree murder. But in a strange twist of fate, that got overturned. And there was a second trial. He decided to plead guilty to manslaughter and assault. And he was released after 11 years. Jim Haverkamp, he pled guilty to assault theft, carrying a concealed weapon, and he was sentenced to 1 to 26 years. He was released in 1998 after serving 13 years. And again, these guys got these lower sentences because they all testified against against Michael. Michael. Yeah. And I don't think any of them would have ever done anything 
like this whatsoever if they weren't brainwashed, but still they did do it. I mean, they did it and it was awful. Now, John Andreas, he pled guilty to assault, theft, carrying a concealed weapon and was sentenced to one to 26 years too. He was released in 1998 after 13 years also. Michael's wife, Ruth Ryan, his legal wife, I found an article in which she's quoted saying, I was a coward. What can I say? It was just a horrible time. Rick Strice. Mm-hmm. The escapee. The escapee. He moved far away. He lives his life kind of in hiding. I saw a story that one of his family members had given saying that where he grew up in the, you know, the area he grew up, everybody pretty much disowned him and he moved very far away and has a completely different life than what he had. And he prefers to remain kind of living anonymously. Good news. Cheryl returned home with her five children to be with her husband, Lester. Lester took her back. Lester took her back. What a nice man. She testified against Michael at the trial, and she discussed how she was brainwashed into believing everything that Michael said. And you remember in the beginning I told you about James Paul Wickstrom? Yes. The posse comatatus guy? Yes. He went on to be a radio talk show host. Really? That's why I asked if you knew him. (laughs) Wow. A Christian minister. He's known for his strong right-winged opinions. He just died, so you know. He was intensely anti-communist, and he denounced those with whom he perceived to be communist, such as Barack Obama and Nelson Mandela. They were communists They were to him? He rejoiced when Nelson Mandela died, describing Nelson Mandela as a vile black terrorist. Jeez. That's the story. <sighs> That was heavy. What a horrifying story. Crazy. I'm glad you did it, though. Man. Oof. Yeah, and it's Friday at 4, so (laughs) in about an hour you can go drink away all your memories of this. Seriously, man. Just so you know, I got my information from the court case. I got some information from findagrave.com, a Chicago Tribune article, And Oxygen Channel apparently did a show on this that I didn't know about called Deadly Cults. So I read that article. Deadly Cults, that ain't a lie. Damn. That is the episode for today. I want to thank every single person out there for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And I know, Tanya, you had some shout outs. We do have some shout outs. We have Jean. Thank you, Jean. Melissa M. Thank you, Melissa M. And Deborah W. Thank you, Deborah W. Thank you so much, our newest members. And don't forget to check out our social media where you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can go to our website, tntcrimes.com, and purchase online-only episodes. And when you become a member, you have access to all of our online episodes, past and future. And live episodes. Yes, we just did a live episode last week for members only. That was very fun. It was fun. I enjoyed that. So that's it. And you can become a member by either going to our website, tntcrimes.com, or you can go to patreon.com. And And thank you. And thank you very much. Bye. Until next time. Bye. Bye.